The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 142 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or a result of my current employment, and I've never knowingly disclosed any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we have another wonderful show for you this evening, folks. The Field Chief Technology Officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi, is going to be with us this evening. As the field CTO at Veronis, Brian supports a wide range of security and technology initiatives by helping Veronis's customers and partners get the most out of the company's products. In his 20-year technical career, Brian served as a developer, technology architect, engineer, and product manager for companies in the financial services, legal, and cybersecurity spaces. Brian joined Veronis in 2010 in technical marketing, led education and development, and now serves as the company's field CTO. He holds a CISP certification and frequently speaks on topics related to security and technology. He has been quoted in news sources ranging from the Financial Times to Dark Reading and has made multiple appearances on CNBC. So I'm super stoked to have Brian here with us this evening. It's going to be a great show, so let's get right to it. So it's time to welcome to the show the Field Chief Technology Officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi. Brian, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, so you've been around a long time. You've been in cybersecurity for, for uh, over a decade at least. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit how you, about you approach cybersecurity. Yeah, so I've been in cybersecurity now for a little over 10 years, uh, but I was in IT and systems architecture and applications development for more than a decade before that. And my approach comes really these days from thinking about data first. Um, cybersecurity traditionally, when you think about it, has really been focused on perimeters. So firewalls, endpoints, antivirus, things like that. Whereas it's the, what's often been ignored is the data, but nobody breaks into a bank to steal the pens, right? Nobody's breaking into a network to get access to the network itself. They're there for data. And you know, these days we're concerned about data breaches, either led by an insider or an outsider. So my approach has always been understand the data, what you have, where it is, how it's exposed, how it's being used, how people get access to it, how they connect to your network, um, how they connect to the data itself. And when you start from the inside out, you have a much better picture of what's going on and a much better ability to both detect and prevent the kinds of things that we're trying to detect and prevent today. 
Do you think most companies know where their crown jewels are? I don't. And I know for a fact that they don't. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we do risk assessments uh, for anybody who wants to do one. Uh, it's a relatively straightforward process. And part of that is mapping their environment. We focus on file systems, which for most companies is like 80% of the data that they've got. 20% of that is often open to everybody. And a whole lot of that includes the crown jewels. So I can guarantee you that most companies don't know where their crown jewels are. And who the golden key holders are to those crown jewels a lot of times, yeah. which is, you know. Well, really what's important. interesting, you, you mentioned the golden key holders, but when so much of that data is open to anybody who literally plugs into the network, well, that means that anybody, any insider that logs in in the morning has the key. And if they click on the wrong email or they have a, a weak password, or maybe their password was used in their LinkedIn account that was breached 10 years ago, and now an attacker has that as part of a dark web dictionary so they can credential stuff and get access to that account. The point is, everybody has the key. There's no golden key. The doors are left wide open. Right, right, right. Can you walk me through some of the top security issues and threats that you see that are related to the remote security that you're seeing now? Yeah, it's, so what's interesting is we were on a pretty, uh, a pretty accelerated course towards a mostly remote workforce, or at least a, 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 a remote workforce in general. Borderless security has been something that a lot of people have been talking about. But what happened in the last few months at the beginning of March when suddenly everybody had to go home is you had everybody suddenly using, if not their corporate workstation, their personal workstations from their home Wi-Fi network. They're all accessing the VPN. We've seen a massive acceleration into Teams, Microsoft Teams and Office 365. So the threats that we're seeing are, it, it, it's, it's everything that you would expect. Brute force, brute force of the VPN, brute force on 365 accounts. We're also seeing companies that are doing things in the name of business continuity, like leaving security doors wide open. Uh, one of the stories that I've been telling a lot lately is we had a, one of the CISOs we work with had a three-year rollout plan for Microsoft Teams at the beginning of this year. And in March, that became a three-week rollout plan because it's just like get everybody to work. When you do that, you skip over a lot of steps. You bypass the checklist, you bypass the hardening, and a lot of data just gets left wide open, either by design or by mistake. There was one firm we worked with that they didn't have enough VPN capacity at the beginning of March. They had 10,000 employees and only 700 VPN seats. So they put their file servers directly on the internet, which is crazy when you think about it from a security perspective. So brute force, phishing, obviously, everybody's under stress, everybody's clicking on emails related to COVID or protests or you know, just the chaos in the world. And we're also seeing, uh, we have an incident response team, and they're seeing a pretty significant uptick in insider threat activity. And it makes sense why, right? People are worried about their jobs, they're nervous, they're worried about whether they're going to keep their job, whether they're going to have a job, uh, in, in what their job might be in the future. They're also trying to work around network outages and restrictions. Mm. My, per, my home network today has been all kinds of spotty. I think a lot of people are dealing with issues. So what a lot of users will do is they'll just say, okay, I'm going to download the entire department share down to my laptop just so I can get my work done. From a security perspective, that's nuts. It's like you're making a copy of everything. Then you're storing it on your laptop. Even if it's a corporate hardened laptop, it's on your personal Wi-Fi network where the password is FIDO. Anybody can get access to it. Breaking into a, you know, someone's home Wi-Fi network is like stepping over a baby. So suddenly you have all of these different security issues from worrying about the perimeter, worrying about the insider, worrying about chaos, worrying about uh, overlooked security controls, all coming to a head all at once. From a cybersecurity perspective, this transition to remote, a remote workforce has been a, a boon for the bad guys, I'll put it that way. 
Right, right. You mentioned Microsoft Teams. Mm -hmm. Microsoft Teams is skyrocketing right now. Is there anything that we should be concerned about with Teams? Um, Well, so there's something people need to be aware of, right? So I'll preface this by saying, internally at Veronis, we use Teams and 365 extensively. It is a great tool for collaboration. So it's easy to see why people are moving to 365 and Teams. Microsoft wants you to collaborate. They want you to be able to access the data you need to access and create the data that you need to create from anywhere in the world, from any device, and be able to give anybody else access to it. In a traditional file share, right? So let's say you want to lock down your data on-prem, on a big NAS platform or just a, a file server. IT creates a share. They create a group, a security group, an AD, and they put people in it. And there's lots of chaos that goes along with that. But the users themselves generally can't break anything, right? If I'm in this group, I've got access to this data. If I'm not, then I don't. And now maybe the users will copy data out and do all kinds of other things that we're worried about. But from a security perspective, the users themselves can't break anything. With Teams and 365, that model is flipped on its head because it's end users that are sharing access to their own files and to the data that's in Teams. And they're sharing it with other people or other groups or external users or everybody in the company or every, anybody on the internet. And they're doing it from workstations and mobile devices, from web browsers, Teams clients, applications themselves. And what happens is, depending on how people are sharing with who and what they're sharing, it's almost impossible and basically impossible for IT to understand who's got access to what and where sensitive data is and where it's concentrated and at risk and how it's being used. So you add all of that up. I know I I just talked for like 90 seconds without breathing, but (laughs) you put all that together and as organizations accelerate the adoption of Teams in 365, which makes perfect sense. It's what everybody's doing because it's a great way to collaborate and get work done, especially when everybody's working from home. There's a lot of underlying access control and security issues that IT and IT security often don't know about. And it's one of the reasons that Microsoft partners with us to help kind of get control over that. So you you also mentioned insiders. Mm -hmm. And so obviously the insider threat is a material risk for most companies, at least especially the bigger companies. Um, is, is it more challenging to find out when and if insiders are behaving badly when they're remote as opposed to when they're in the office? Yeah, it, it, it is and it isn't. Um, it, it, there, there's a lot of factors. Just like anything, it's kind of complex, right? So when they're remote, they're often uh, accessing data through two ways. One is Teams and 365 that we just talked about and figuring out where people are accessing sensitive data abnormally in 365 is really, really tricky. Um, you might know when there's an, what's called an unreasonable geolocation hop. Like Brian is logging in to Office 365 from both New York, I'm here in Brooklyn, and my account is logging in from Russia. That's weird, right? So yeah. you might get alerted that that's going on. Um, but you might not know not when that happens exactly what data was touched, right? So you might see a brute force login, but you might not know exactly what happens afterwards. Similarly, with the VPN, that's the other way to get access to data. Um, If I'm an insider and I open my laptop and my VPN client connects automatically or I go to a web browser and log in, uh, there's other ways that I might connect to the VPN. Um, A company might know, again, when there's an unreasonable geohop or a lot of failed logins or something like that, but they won't necessarily know what that user does next. 
And because the data itself is usually going unmonitored, and this was true before the remote workforce, and it's still true now, it's really hard to figure out when an insider is behaving badly, especially an insider that has any idea what they're doing. One of the hardest things to do is catch an admin looking at data because an admin, if they're smart, they would just you know, take a service account and use that account to access data or reset the password of a user who is on maternity leave or something and then use that account to access data. So it's really tricky unless you know a lot about each user, what they have access to, what they normally touch, how that data is sensitive, what their peers do, where they normally come from, the devices that they normally use. Unless you aren't, already know all of that stuff, it's, it's, it's hard as heck to pick, pick out when somebody is behaving badly. It's why catching insiders is just so tricky. So without a baseline of behavior, it's hard to see the anomalies in their behavior. Basically. Exactly. If you don't know what's normal, then you <laughs> right. can't know what's abnormal. And what's really interesting is you might know what's normal. I, like I talk to a lot of CISOs and we'll talk about these issues and they'll say, yeah, but I know my users only come from kind of New York and Tennessee and San Francisco, whatever it might be. So if I see someone coming from Europe, then I know something's wrong. I'm like, okay, but everybody's now working remotely. They're all working from home. What happens if they're, you know, they, they turn on their personal VPN, they turn on, you know, um, hide my IP or NordVPN or something. And because they want to access Netflix from the UK, are you going to be, you're going to be drowned in alert noise. You can't investigate every single one of those. But if you can connect a weird geo hop with that user, then accessing data that they've never touched before, because you have that, as you just said, you know, what's normal. Um, so you know what's abnormal. Now you have something real that you can look at. And so one of the things that we're seeing, this is really the realm of data science and security analytics, is combining different kinds of behavior together to build more useful profiles. Because each one of those data sets, where they come from and how they access the VPN, uh, which devices they use and how they authenticate, how their device behaves and what services are running, what data they access, whether that data is sensitive, um, the DNS queries they make, the websites that they access, unless you can really easily put all of those things together, it's really hard to know what normal is for a user, a device, and data. You just have a lot of disparate noise, which it makes it so hard to pick out the needle in the haystack, if any of that makes some sense. How do you, how do you take into account physical access in, with all these different logs that you're looking at and uh, this type of behavior? How does that play into it? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that because in a, in a remote workforce environment, uh, physical access suddenly doesn't matter all that much. It's not um, what's there, even, right? Yeah, it's not even there anymore. Uh, what, what's also interesting is um, it used to be that the, the backup plan for security, like if, if somebody, like we see ransomware running wild, right? Okay, my, my, one of my favorite stories came at a, and I'm going to back up for a second, favorite story is that one of our customers told, this was a few years ago at one of our customer events. And he got an alert that one of his users um, had kicked off a ransomware attack because one of the things Veronis does is look at how files are accessed so we can figure out when a user, instead of just like opening office documents and stuff, suddenly starts encrypting everything on the NAS, which is a big deal. And they didn't have a process set up yet to actually stop that from happening. So this uh, security guy just said, oh, crap, I don't, I don't know what to do. He walked down the hall because he could see the user. He knew who it was. And he walked down the hall and just unplugged the, the guy's workstation from the network because he had physical access to it. He's like, I, I, I just got to stop this because you don't know this is happening right now, but your machine is encrypting everything on the network. In a remote work environment, it's not just your users that are remote. 
it's all your IT guys too. So if the same thing happened today, your security guy or your IT guy would have to get in his car, drive down to the office, and then find the machine or find the server and unplug it. So suddenly, this is one of the things that a lot, a lot of people didn't realize that was so important as part of the remote workforce transition. Time to detection, what we call TTD for security incidents, has always been important. How quick can you see what's going on? But time to resolution, how long does it take you to investigate it and come to a conclusion about what's happening and then actually take action? That's even more important now because suddenly everybody's on the same playing field. Your IT guys, your users, and the people that want to get control of your systems, they're all working remotely. So it's been interesting to see uh, how security folks have started to shift their thinking a little bit, where it's kind of like we, we no longer have physical access. It also means that technologies that require physical access, like if you want to put in better security and it requires racking and stacking physical hardware, well, during the pandemic, that was almost impossible. So you had to, you had to the stuff that was software-based and that could be deployed and managed remotely became much more valuable. Yeah, this is really interesting from the, from the remote perspective because I, I know that, you know, some corporations even have cameras and mm-hmm. you know, when they have an insider threat, they're tracking the person physically through the floor at the same time as they're watching their access and, you know, can get very sophisticated, especially when there's a lot at stake. Um, do most insider threat programs have the resources they need and do they, do they understand how they should be identifying and dispositioning these alerts? Uh, A couple of really good questions in there. I don't know about most, but in my experience, uh, organizations that have an insider threat program are generally throwing resources at it. Because if you have a, because a lot of companies and a lot of organizations don't have an insider threat program or it's one bullet point as part of their broader, you know, security mandate. Um, Any, any organization that actually has an insider threat program. And in my experience, it's the companies that can really throw money at security. They are, uh, they're, they at least have the resources. The second part of that question is, do they really understand um, kind of what's going on and can they, um, do they really understand what it means to be able to identify an insider quickly and efficiently? The answer in my experience is it's a mixed bag. Uh, They're good at understanding when uh, perimeters are breached, specifically the endpoints. They're good at seeing things like failed account lockouts, or they're good at seeing things like lateral movement when users start moving to different devices. That's become relatively mature because you can look at the authentication traffic. I go back to your first question, which is a really good one. How do I approach cybersecurity? They're not really good at being able to look at data because so much data goes usually unmonitored. And if you're only watching the perimeter or you're watching traffic over the wire, it's really hard to pick out abnormal data access. I would, I would argue it's basically impossible. There's nobody that's sitting in Splunk looking at router logs that's figuring out abnormal data access. It just doesn't happen. All right, folks, we've got to take a commercial break, but stick with us. Lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. 
We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Field Chief Technology Officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. 
Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the field chief technology officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi. So, Brian, what would you say to a company that isn't too worried about security because they've moved to the cloud or they have MFA in place? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I would say you need to find a new CISO. I don't know anybody who's, <laughs> who seriously says we've moved to the cloud, so now we don't need to worry about security. I couldn't get the question out without laughing. I yeah. almost got it out. I mean, but I just, I just, yeah, the cloud is, basically you're saying we've moved our, our systems, our processes, our data to somebody else's internet-connected computer. So security <laughs> is even more, uh, even more, could be more of a priority than it ever was before. That said, the great thing about, one of the great things about cloud services is, is that you always have the latest and greatest in security patching and functionality, and you're, and you're outsourcing the perimeter security, at least, of that cloud data to presumably companies like Microsoft, Amazon, and Google that really know what they're doing, right? Microsoft is much better at managing a data center than I am, right? So, right. so, th- so there's certainly some security benefits there. But all the cloud providers are going to say, listen, we're providing the infrastructure, and we're going to make sure that nobody can get into the data center remotely. But your data and your systems, if you leave things wide open, that's your fault. Amazon, like, there was those breaches that involved misconfigured Amazon buckets. Amazon's, rightfully so, their position was, you misconfigured your, your S3 bucket. Like you left it wide open. That's not our fault, right? We're by, providing the infrastructure. It's not our job to secure your environment. So when your environment's controlled by somebody else, but it's avail- it's accessible by anybody on the internet, you have much more to do to make sure that it is properly secured. MFA, great. Use MFA. It is the single biggest uh, step that you can take, the single best step that you can take to mitigate brute force attacks, but MFA is not a panacea. There are certainly ways around MFA. You can, you can bypass MFA in 365 in a couple of steps. It's actually not that hard if you know what you're doing and you've got a man in the middle um, Microsoft login set up. We have a demonstration that you show you to do it. MFA doesn't solve every problem, just like having antivirus on your laptops doesn't solve every problem, just like having a firewall doesn't solve every problem. These are one piece of a broader security stack defense in depth is even more important as you move to the cloud. So I know that you're a big advocate of consumer privacy, as am I. Do you, do you think privacy is taking a backseat right now with all that's going on? Uh, I do. Uh, unfortunately, mm. I do. It's, you know, we, GDPR and CCPA kind of had their heyday in the, in the zeitgeist, in the security and, and compliance zeitgeist over the last few years. With, this, with the pandemic uh, and the transition to remote work, Uh, There's a lot of folks who are saying, yeah, I get it. I'm concerned about privacy, but it's not even my, it's not in my top concern right now. It's not my second top concern. My top concern is business continuity, or really my my primary concern is the safety of my people. Secondary concern is business continuity. Can they get to work? The tertiary concern is are the right, you know, the basic security controls in place, Uh, you know, compliance and privacy are pretty far down that list. And I've certainly had people say to me, we know we're going to have to worry about this, but right now, nobody's getting HIPAA fined right now, right? Nobody's, there's, they're, they're, nobody's getting fined under GPR right now because there's too much chaos. So it certainly has taken a backseat. And I think as consumers, there's only so much you can do as a consumer, right? You can do the same things you always should be doing. Use a password manager so that your one account can't 
uh, trigger a password spray on all your other accounts. Um, use multi-factor, especially, especially on your Gmail account or your primary email, personal email account. Um, don't click on links and emails, like all the basic stuff. Keep your stuff up to date. Um, consumers should be worried about it, but companies aren't as worried about it as they used to be. You'd be surprised how many people don't use MFA. I mean, it's available on their social media accounts, their email accounts. They just don't use it. I, I don't see I know. I, I, you, I, you say I'd be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Just on this kind of consumer privacy point, um, I've been, uh, and I'm not, certainly not the first, but I've been trumpeting the use of password managers for a number of years now. And it used to be people would think, okay, I get it, but it seems like a hassle and I don't want to have to go to this one system to get my password to log in to something else. But these days, when the password managers are all connected to the biometrics, right? My password manager is linked to the touch ID on my phone um, or face ID on my iPad. It, it's so much easier to use than trying to remember a password. I have no idea. Yeah, forget it. Any forget of my it. passwords are. There's one password that I know, or two passwords that I know. One is my corporate laptop password because they won't let me actually link my <laughs> password manager. And two is my password manager password, which is like 40 characters. I have no idea what any other password is, which means, and they're all different, which means if any one of those sites or apps gets hacked and there's a breach, I don't care. I'll just reset that password. It also means I don't have to remember anything. Every time I log into a website, I just let the password manager fill it in. It's way more convenient. I don't know why anybody wouldn't use it. But the only thing that you have to do these days that would take a while is you have to go reset all of your passwords, but it's like an afternoon. It's like doing your taxes. Do it once and then you have to, have to do it again. Yeah, it does take some time. I will say that. Actually, I've been working on mine for a long time. I've, I've had a password manager for a year now. I don't know how people operate without them. I could never operate without a password manager. I mean, most people have dozens and dozens of, of web accounts, mm -hmm. all kinds of things. And all, and, all the, and all the app accounts and um, if you, you could pry that from my cold dead hands and then some people say well I don't want to have to pay for it first of all there are good free options but second of all this is like a core technology it's a it's a core technology it is worth paying for right this yep. is something where this is going to this is going, this pays off first of all password managers even the paid ones are cheap for what you get they're so convenient and I, I don't need to trumpet that that uh, or beat on that drum anymore but it is if you're listening to this and not using a password manager uh, you're, you're putting yourself at risk. No, you're missing and out. And plus, all the time you spend on resetting your passwords because you can't remember them because you tried to use oh, different God, passwords, yeah. right? I mean, that's just, and it, it just drives me crazy. I'm, I'm much more productive. Do you see legislation for additional privacy measures slowing down anytime soon, given that the pandemic is here, right? Well, probably. I think everything, legislation for almost anything is going to slow down a little bit. Also, we, uh, we live in a charitably, we could call it an anti-regulatory climate. That said, um, I think we're seeing a shift in, you know, it's a slow but marked shift in how people think about their online presence and their personal data. Um, so the answer is I can't predict the future. Uh, if I could, um, well, I'd probably be retired by now. But it's, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I'm not sure if it's slowing down. I'm not sure we're going to see any, any privacy regulation in the near future only because everything compliance is kind of taking a backseat to the pandemic. But I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Um, I don't know what form it'll take. Um, the CCPA is a pretty good model, and, and a lot of other states are following it. And you know, historically, if you get a critical mass of enough states doing one thing, eventually 
you're going to have enough companies that'll say, listen, I don't want to follow 43 different regulations. Just make one that I can, that I can map to. So what are most executives talking about these days? What's the topic of conversation on the executive committees or in the board? Um, we've already talked a lot about that is what, what does the shift to remote work mean? Uh, what does it mean from a risk perspective? Do we really understand the risk? Uh, that kind of the, the access control model, this gets a little bit in the weeds, but what happens when you move to teams and what that means as far as securing data is something that most companies don't really understand. And it's the one conversation I'm having with everybody. So I'm having lots of threat detection conversations. How do we understand and anomaly at the VPN and connect that to data? How do we understand and catch uh, not just brute force and phishing, but catch insiders? I'm still, as always, having lots of data protection conversations. Uh, we've got so much data that's open to everybody. How do I, how do I fix that problem? But the acceleration and, uh, and the, of the adoption of Teams and 365, especially because it is a, it's a data protection issue, it's a compliance issue, it's a cybersecurity issue, it's also a remote workforce issue because it's, the, the transition has, has accelerated that. that. What does the cloud mean for us, especially as it's not just moving server services or it's not just moving infrastructure into the cloud, it's moving collaboration into the cloud. Some companies were already there, but now everybody's got to pedal down. And that's, I think executives really want to know, what does this mean? Not necessarily a cybersecurity question, but are executives starting to wonder why they're paying all these real estate costs? Uh-huh. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll put it this way. I would hate to be in corporate real estate right now. It yeah. is. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of, Although, on the other hand, I'm really glad I'm in cybersecurity because everybody needs us now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think I was talking to one guy today and he's telling me, hey, and he just mentioned it out of the blue. He goes, yeah, my company's getting a lot out of me. I'm working seven to seven because I'm at home and, you Mm -hmm. know, I just kind of just hanging out and I'm just working because I'm comfortable. I'm in my own house. You know, I can put my my laptop right in my lap if I want and I can just keep working. He goes, I'm working 12 hours a day as opposed to eight. For me, I was on the road uh, four weeks a month up until March. Uh, for the past couple of years, it's, it was at least uh, three or four flights a week. I was on a plane every single week. And there was only so many meetings that I could take, only so much that I could do, because half of my time was in the air, in an Uber, uh, in an airline lounge, or, you know, you just, just in transit. Now, I haven't gotten on a plane since, I think, March 11th was my last flight. I'm getting, I'm working more than ever before. I'm way more productive. Um, the one thing, though, that I think is interesting is, you do lose something uh, trying to do, and this is maybe a little old school kind of the way business gets done, but when you, you can't really make eye contact over Zoom, right? You can look into the camera, but then you can't see the person's eyes and they may not be looking at you. They may be looking at something else. Yeah. else. So you can't make eye contact. But I find that a lot of these meetings where communication is really critical when you're trying to convey a complex point or you're trying to collaborate with lots of people, there's lots of talking over each other. Meetings necessarily aren't as effective. Um, you certainly gain a lot of efficiency and for a lot of job roles, it makes a lot of sense for some, you know, not so much. There's, there is a, there's a lot of person to person stuff that still needs to get done. I will say this is the new normal, right? There's no, there's no way everybody that's now working remotely is going to go back to work. Some people will, but this is, you think so? We were huh? already moving to, yeah, we were already moving towards this, right? Like most people knew, listen, I can work from home. 
couple days a week and I'm just as productive. Even if you only, even if you're working, you know, six hours instead of eight, you're not fussing around as much. You can get, you, you, you can get more done. A lot of people can, a lot of people get more done. I think this is really the new normal. Um, but, but it depends, you know, it depends on the job, the industry. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it, but I think to answer your, you know, your, your question, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to be in real estate. I think the idea of, um, having everybody come to a central office every single day of the week. I think that uh, that's that, that model is going to kind of pass in the legend. It's funny though. The uh, it's, it's interesting to see the industries that really resisted this. Some of the investment banks, for instance, I know of even during the pandemic were two weeks on two weeks off where they were still having people come in because they hated the idea of people working <laughs> at law firms. Uh, I, some of my best friends are lawyers uh, and, but they, oh, they hate, people working remotely because lawyers I think work they're used to being billable right so it's every hour counts and when you're home there's you know there's a lot of distractions and they assume that people won't get as much work done but I think what we're finding is a lot of people are just as productive uh, and it, it's a lot cheaper to have just send someone a laptop and say hey use your internet connection then give them a desk and a space and a, a, you know have to pay for uh, a building for them to sit in yeah, especially now because these open environments that they set up uh, in some of these offices with the pandemic, now they have to go back to the old way of sort of moving everybody apart I don't from know, each other. Does anybody <laughs> like those open environments? I don't know. I hated it. It's, they, I, was, I remember I worked at, before I came to Veronis, I was at UBS. Uh, the, 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 I was wealth management, but the, the big Swiss bank, and I was in IT. And we went from uh, cubicle height at one point because I was in um, – systems architecture we went from like full-size cubicles to like half height where now even if you're sitting at your desk you could see everybody from the shoulders up it wasn't a true open environment but it was a big shift and man uh, it drove me nuts i i it, i'm not a big fan of the open uh, work plan maybe some people are but i think there, there are some things that are going to be better now it's tough when you're discussing sensitive uh, matters and you have sensitive issues and if you're a manager i guess and you you know, you have to have calls about, you know, your team and, and things like that. I mean, uh, those types of sensitive HR issues, you know, there's, there's other regulatory issues that people are probably talking about on all different types of industries that uh, I think are confidential, um, you know, privacy issues. So it's hard. But it overall, is. And also some people, some people just have anxiety, right? Some people just don't like the idea of <laughs> trying to get something, some work done. It's, a, it's uh, people work in different ways and forcing someone to try to be focused and productive um, and not worry about the other people around them when maybe some people naturally do is, uh, I, I don't think it works for everybody. And in my experience, no, you're probably right. It doesn't I, I bother me at people all. That agree with me. Yeah. It, it, I find there are a lot of people that do agree with me. So it'll be interesting. I think yeah. we're going to see a lot of people stay home. I think we'll see a lot of office space be reconfigured to be a little bit, um, more, uh, it, you know, people are going to be a little bit more separated. Um, everybody's going to be wearing masks now. It's going to be, it's going to be a what's pretty the, new world next year. Overall, what's the biggest cybersecurity takeaway from the pandemic um, and remote work? The, the biggest takeaway, that's a really good question. I'm not sure there is a biggest takeaway, but I think what remote work has forced companies to realize is anybody can get to anything whether it's a user's device, a user's data, your corporate data, an application, a system. And this was true in January. This wasn't because of the, the shift to remote work, but I think it's forcing a lot of boards suddenly realize everything is exposed. 
there's no such thing. I mean, maybe you certainly you have like government and, and high security, like air gap networks and stuff like that, but anybody can get to anything from anywhere. And it was always the case. And the, 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 the hackers knew and like the, the bad guys knew this, but I don't think it really hit home until suddenly everybody was working from home. The other thing, and I'm not sure this is the biggest takeaway, but what's been really interesting is, so there's another, there's another CISO that we work with. It's a, uh, he's a CISO for a, a, a mid-sized financial up in Connecticut. And he said, you know, in January, I had five locations with 1,500 people, right? So five offices, 1,500 people. Now, and I was, ha- I was talking to him in April. He said, now I've got 1,500 locations, each with one person. And every one of those locations doesn't just have that one person. It's got our employee with their corporate laptop. Then it's got their kids and their other personal devices. So it's these locations that I have zero control over. Who knows how secure they are? They probably aren't. There's personal devices that might be and probably are riddled with malware. But the last time I went to look at my dad's computer, for instance. So suddenly the attack surface that I need to worry about, and realistically this was true in January too because some people were working from home every now and then. But now this is the model. This is the new normal. So suddenly I have to worry about a much bigger and more complex attack surface. And so I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway is that everything is, you, there's so much less visibility than there was before. It's, it's your, most security teams are just drowning in noise and chaos now because there's no way they can know what's, nobody's shipping their home router logs back to Splunk, right? <laughs> right, so right? There's no right, way to right. know what's going on. All right, Brian, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the field chief technology officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You can't see it. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. But it can bankrupt your company. It's internal risk. Insider fraud, ethics violations, and remote workforce risk have plunged many a company into reputational crisis. Don't be one of them. The corporate investigative team at Bluecoat have managed cybersecurity and risk mitigation in the White House, Silicon Valley, and everywhere in between. To see how Bluecoat can help protect you, visit TrustBlueCoat.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. 
However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the Field Chief Technology Officer of Veronis, Mr. Brian Vecchi. So, Brian, what are some of the next steps that companies with remote workers should take right now to ensure they're not exposing themselves to a cyber attack? What, what should companies do, right? Yeah, the biggest one uh, is, and you mentioned this before, is multi-factor. Um, yeah. The most common attack we're seeing is brute force. Uh, the second most common attack is phishing. So, I'm assuming most companies have phishing protection in place. Uh, the key with phishing, though, is that it leads to credential hijack. So phishing can launch ransomware, um, but it can also just give an attacker control of that account. So to counter phishing, once you know, once the file dropper gets passed, so the way phishing usually works is a, a, a user will click on the phishing link, and it's not trying to pass a, a malware payload through since that'll usually get blocked. It's just passing a file dropper, which is like a DBS script that'll download the payload separately as a you know a bits admin or wget call. So th- the point is defending against phishing once the email gets through is much trickier and there's not one thing that you should be doing. But to defend against brute force, the best thing you can do is put in multi-factor. And I think a lot of companies that didn't have multi-factor in place in general before the pandemic are doing so now. Any multi-factor <laughs> vendor is, is loving this. Um, the other thing is uh, the single sign-on and identity management is good, but realize that, and, and it's a good step to take, it's a huge project, and it's not something that you would generally do as a reaction to remote work, um, but it also doesn't touch data. And remember, my, the biggest thing that I, my, my, my biggest takeaway or my approach to cybersecurity is start with data. So if you don't know at least what you have and how it's being used or where it is and where it's exposed, if you can't answer basic questions, that's a pretty good step. Right, right. So third-party risk, the supply chain, these are always big material risks in companies. What about partners and consultants? What kind of risk do they bring into this scenario? 
Uh, another way to think of a partner and a consultant are the are these these are accounts that have access to your data and your systems, and they're often accounts that don't get turned off. Remember, the target breach uh, came back to a, a partner's credentials, right? A a um, a service provider's credentials. So, you know, one of the things that we do a lot of times when we do risk assessments, or we do them as part of every risk assessment, is we'll look at Active Directory credentials and we'll look at stale but enabled accounts, since that's a, that's a pretty significant risk factor. If you've got accounts that are enabled, meaning that there's nothing stopping those accounts from logging in and continuing to access data and systems, but there hasn't been an authentication event in 60 days, which is how we define stale, um, those accounts are risk factors, since any, it, you know, any one of those credentials gets stuffed or breached or brute forced, and suddenly you've got an account that isn't being used or hadn't been being used. They may have no business reason to be activated running around accessing data. The most common reason for that that I found is because of contractors and service providers who do seasonal work. So uh, the company's you know, line will be, well, we just leave those active because we don't have to recreate them or go through any process. But it's a, you know, especially in, a, in an environment where those are exactly the kinds of accounts that are being brute forced right now, uh, it's probably worth taking a really close look and seeing whether or not you can close some of those doors, if that makes some sense. I know one of the attacks that people are most worried about these days is ransomware. It mm -hmm. seems like the, the numbers are going up every day. So how is ransomware changing? You know, what can organizations do to prevent themselves be, uh, before coming the latest victim of this ransomware? Yeah, so, uh, so ransomware has evolved a lot over the last few years, and I think a lot of organizations still look at ransomware prevention as an endpoint problem. Um, if you know it, that it mostly exists on the endpoint or that you can block it from the endpoint, but there's all kinds of ransomware variants from maze to save the queen that go right past EDR. It doesn't matter what kind of EDR you have. They're going to, they're going to blow right past it. And a lot of the more sophisticated ones are also going low and slow, uh, meaning that they're not tripping threshold alarms. Ransomware, remember, attacks files. That's what makes it so insidious because it goes after a data set, file systems, that are often overexposed. Files are often open to way more people than need them, uh, need to have access to them, including files that are open to everybody. Meaning any single user that makes a mistake and launches a ransomware attack puts that data at risk. It's also attacking a data set, files, that often aren't monitored at all. The best way to catch ransomware isn't to look at the processes on the endpoint, it's to look at the data that's being accessed and encrypted. And if you're not monitoring file access, there's no way to do that. Catching ransomware over the wire just doesn't work. So uh, for a lot of companies, the, what they need to think about is, let's assume that a credential gets breached. What would that account be able to do? If it could access, uh, especially low and slow, data that it does not need to access, that means that data is at risk for ransomware. And the big ransomware attacks that you hear about, like the ones that hit cities, those are because file systems are left wide open and unmonitored and ransomware hits both of those weak points uh, directly. So do you have any insight in if companies are paying the ransomware? Are a lot of companies paying or do you have insight into that? Some are, yeah. Some keep Bitcoin wallets. Um, some have to in the name of business continuity or organizational continuity. They have no choice. Uh, the so the new, the, new, the new trend for business continuity is, is to keep a Bitcoin wallet ready? Yeah, that, that's not even the new trend. That's been, I mean, you, you, you talk to CISOs that, that, like healthcare CISOs, they've had to do this for years. Um, so because ransomware hits these weak points, it's, it, you have no choice. 
Um, I did a panel with an FBI agent. This was years ago, and I don't want to speak for the FBI. So, but I remember something really interesting about that panel is he said the FBI's position uh, on ransomware isn't. Uh, it, it, there was this rumor, not a rumor. There's kind of a myth that the FBI's position was uh, the official position to to post ransomware is to pay the ransom, uh, and that's not their position. Their position is if you want to get your data back, pay the ransom. <laughs> There's no, uh, you know, if you can get away with it not having the data anymore, then good. Put better preventive and detective controls in place. If you need your data back, that's kind of the only way. I will plug, we've got a great blog post or a page that you can go to. If you Google Veronis ransomware, I think you'll find it. But we've got a tool that uh, you give us the file extension of the ransomware. And we, we've, we've compiled all of the various recovery tools. Because a lot of this ransomware is so poorly written that you can recover the data even without paying for it. But the ones that people should be worried about are the ones that aren't poorly written. The ones that uh, this save the queen ransomware that we saw last year was so insidious. It would do things like it would uh, scan for files to encrypt, but it would ignore anything in windows or program files or anything that was an INI or a CAD file or a DLL or an EXE. Basically it would only encrypt the content. It wouldn't encrypt any other data that would impact the ability of the server to serve or the device to to work. Um, And it would spread by putting like uh, tasks into the sysfall shares of uh, Active Directory nodes. So it spread everywhere and, and it only encrypted uh, the stuff that was really hard to get back. That's what people should be worried about. Is your content monitored, not just on the endpoint, but on your shared services. So we were talking about your experience before you've been in cybersecurity for 10 and IT for another 10. You've been doing this for two decades. What do you think security looks like over the next five years? So right in front of me right now, I've got four devices. I've got my corporate laptop. I've got two mobile devices. I've got an iPhone and an iPad. They're both, uh, they're not joined to the Veronis domain, but they are under MDM. So they're managed by Veronis and that I can access 365 and you know my emails and stuff. But they're personal devices. I've also got a personal laptop. Uh, that can only access 365 through the web, but I can't download any data. The point is, all of this is a really kind of complex way to work. And what I find is, I love our IT department, uh, and we have one of the best CISOs in the world, but working on my corporate laptop is kind of a pain in the butt. We have so much running on it, EDR, antivirus. uh, It's uh, the the Microsoft anti-malware executable. Uh, It's it's kind of a beast to use. It's easier for me to get most of my work done or a lot of my work done on an iOS device where I'm just using applications. I'm just using Outlook and the Office applications. I can get a lot of what I need to do done. I can create content. I need my corporate laptop for a few things. If I'm doing any kind of video editing, if I'm doing any kind of um, any, any new content creation, aside from just writing text, I got to do it on my corporate laptop. But most of my, a lot of my work, I can do without it. I think we're going to see, this is all a preface to see, I think we're going to see a continued move to um, more managed devices where access is controlled through apps, which is a little bit easier to, to manage from a security perspective. And we're also going to see a, an increased move to VDI, thin clients. Um, the, one of the biggest, um, the reason EDR as a technology is so successful is that these laptops, these workstations are Swiss cheese, right? They are Oftentimes, aside from the behavior of the user, they're often the weakest link. You you know, you've got hardened firewalls, you've got um, hardened data centers, but then you've got this workstation that's out there in the world. And 
if, depending on the user behavior, may not get patched for a while. Or the users may join um, you know, dumb Wi-Fi networks or use it to join personal VPNs. I think we're going to see it, a move to virtual desktops. Um, I switched to one for a while because I was trying to use a personal laptop, and it was a cloud-hosted virtual desktop. And the problem was if I was on an, uh, an unreliable internet connection, like on a plane, it didn't really work very well. So I think we're going to see a move to thin clients where there's less, you know, it's kind of a combination between a, a fat workstation that is fully, it's expensive, hard to maintain, hard to secure, and hosted VDI, which works really, really well if you have a stable connection. We're probably going to see some middleman where you're going to see more workloads being shifted to either hosted VDI or things like tablet devices that are, there's probably a word that I'm not using, but that are kind of, that are a little bit easier to manage. That said, anecdotally, apparently iOS 13 is also Swiss cheese because as these mobile device operating systems get more complex and, and shoulder more workloads and have more different kinds of applications and more functionality and more input devices and more sensors, there's even more to potentially exploit. Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I appreciate the opportunity, George. It's great. Uh, thanks for having me. And hopefully we can do this again soon. Yeah, I can't wait to have you back. No, no doubt. You ever want to come on, you just give me a call. Oh, I will. Don't worry. Thanks so All much. Right. All right, folks. It's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 